0: I shouted left hand, I was square leg, crossed the cover point, Brian Lara, he didn't do any kind of wry grin, he just stayed in the crease, ready for that first ball and proceeded to smash it everywhere and (laughs) it was game over very quickly.
1: Welcome to another Cricket Scotland podcast with me, Jake Perry. I've been particularly looking forward to this one because today we get the chance to look back on a tournament that holds a very special place in the hearts of all who love Scottish cricket. Scotland's first ever appearance at the ICC World Cup back in 1999. And who better to reminisce about those days than Scotland's captain back then, Cricket Scotland Hall of Famer George Salmond. George, it's fantastic to be able to welcome you to the podcast. Thanks so much for coming on.
0: Thank you for the invitation, Jake.
1: Well, I know, like me, everyone will be looking looking forward very much to stirring a few memories over the next few hours. To start our discussion, though, we need to go back a couple of years before the tournament began. For Scotland, passage to the World Cup was secured in 1997 at the ICC Trophy, which was the, the qualifying tournament, as it was known at that time. So in that year, it was held in, in Malaysia. I was trying to think of a more difficult place to play cricket for a group of Scotsmen in March. What are your memories of that?
0: The heat and humidity um, certainly were, were difficult for us to cope with, but actually the playing conditions it fell into our hands because we played on on matting that tended to get slower and lower as the, every match went on. And in many ways, it replicated what we had um, back in Scotland. So scores, if you were batting first, scores of 180 were defendable, and certainly defendable with the, the type of bowling attack that we had, um, that again, was suited to um, to those conditions. We went there, it was our first opportunity to take part in the associate um, competition. We weren't quite sure what the expectations were, we wanted to do as well as we could, but we knew that in Kenya and Bangladesh there were two hot favourites to qualify and although we played against the likes of Ireland, Denmark, Holland, a lot of the other teams were complete unknown uh, quantities to us. But we did really well. And we got through to eventually the third and fourth place playoff that was a, a winner take all against the Irish. There were two days to play that game. And the first day was completely washed out because of the, the weather and the the ground, the pitch, was completely underwater. It was like a lake, and there was very little chance, we thought, of the game being played the following day. And if that had been the case, Ireland would have gone through on superior run rate. And I can remember going back to the hotel that evening and being in the lift with a few of the Irish players, and they were cock-a-hoot with how things were. And you could understand it from their point of view. But we turned up the next day, the organisers had organised helicopters to come and hover over the particularly wet patches and suddenly it was game on. And I think the difference in sort of mindsets at that stage, suddenly we had a chance to qualify and the Irish had to then get their heads around the fact that, you know, we have to play a game here. And, you know, we we managed to get a total on the board, thanks and, and... Big part to Mike Smith um, and then the bowlers did the job that they did through that tournament and, and we backed them up in the field.
1: It was a fantastic tournament and um, you topped the, the averages for Scotland with the bat and 17 wickets for Ian Bevan and 12 for Keith Sheridan so a tournament for the spinners.
0: Yeah the pair of them did really well, we had Andy Tennant there as well, we played you know in some of the other matches and um, Stuart Kennedy as well, um, came in and did what he did for so long with Fergus Lee, Scotland and, and, and the West. Yeah, lots of happy memories. Um, just good, good hardened cricketers um, who, who just had the desire
1: to win. And, and it was a, a great team to captain. So what did it mean then to get to the World Cup, especially bearing in mind that Scotland had only become an associate member of the ICC, what, three years before that?
0: Yeah, you know, um, we didn't really know, to be honest. Had these grandiose ideas of of suddenly becoming a full-time cricketer and building up um, to, you know, a World Cup tournament two years later. But we weren't quite sure what those two years were going to mean for us. And the, the likelihood was, you know, that one or two that had played in that tournament weren't maybe going to have the longevity to take part in the World Cup itself, which was a real shame for them, given the, the job that they had done to get us there. So the, there was a lot of work that we needed to do with our infrastructure. The ICC clearly were going to support us to give us an opportunity to play against better opposition to build us up for for a World Cup. But I just remember really not knowing what, what was going to come next. Um, and uh, yeah, it was, it was a pretty tough two years that we had in, in build up, because even up until the, the the Malaysia tournament itself, we were still competing with the English counties, and you know we, we found that tough to, to to really compete with them on a consistent basis. And then suddenly we were we were thrown into um, series against, for example, an Australian A side, which in effect was an Australian Test team that was touring with the likes of Matthew Hayden, Jason Gillespie, uh, Brendan Julian and a host of other um, well-known names and it was great to have those matches but it was always going to be an uphill task to get any kind of result against them.
1: What was its impact on the general public, your achievement in, in getting to a World Cup final?
0: I think it was one of these quite nice stories that every now and then made its way into the you know, the, 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 the Scottish written press that followed us around, I think, did a brilliant job of, of trying to give us exposure. And, you know, I'm very grateful to the, the work that they did. Um, and every now and then we'd get a little piece on, on either radio or on the news, but it tended to be one of those, and finally, moments mm-hmm. um, that the news often did. And it would sometimes maybe be, one of the players being followed in their day job um, and then, you know, fast-forwarding through to the fact that they had to train and play matches and would represent Scotland. A little bit like, you know, match of the day do with, with FA Cup teams in the lower leagues and, and they'll follow, you know, somebody in a career and, you know, there's there's a little bit of a story there. And I can I can remember that being the case. It wasn't as if we were suddenly... You know the Scottish team of the moment. Um, football and rugby were clearly always going to to get the limelight. Um, but in the build up to the tournament itself, I suppose the the iconic um, Scottish top that was created with the saltire, and I think it was the first one with the tyre on it in any in any sport, um, helped create a little bit more of an atmosphere. But yeah, it was still cricket in a, a country that wasn't particularly well known for playing cricket
1: now talking about the build-up in general there are always a couple of photos that pop up whenever scotland 99 is discussed one is of the captain's photo call at lords and the other is of, of you view with a, a certain supermodel those media calls must have been quite a chore <laughs> <laughs> well we'll
0: start with the most important one i um the photo that Caprice has in her <laughs> um, study of of, 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 you know, with myself. And um, we were coming back from the Commonwealth Games in 1998, which having finished in third place in Malaysia in 97, as well as qualifying for the World Cup, we've, we qualified for the Commonwealth Games as well. And I can remember Jim Love saying to me um, that we... Um, we we were stopping off in London to get a connection back to Glasgow or Edinburgh and he said, when we get back to London would you stay an extra night in London and get a plane the following day because there's a, there's a modelling opportunity for the, the new Scotland um, tops for all the, 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 the countries will be um, having a representative there to model their tops and um, a supermodel called Caprice will be there as well. And I'd never heard of Caprice at that stage. So when I phoned my then fiance, now wife, Angela, to say I'm, I'm staying an extra night because I'm I'm doing a, a modelling shoot with Caprice, and her knowledge of OK Magazine and, and fashion meant that she knew fine well who Caprice was and didn't believe that this was going to happen. And probably some of the wind-ups that I'd done in the past coming back to haunt me and, and, and the fact that she didn't believe me. But sure enough, stayed overnight in London with the likes of Stuart Law, who was um, representing Australia, Adam Holyoke, who was there for England. And we had a great day the next day with lots of um, stunning-looking models. Um, And then the supermodel was was dropped in as well and various pictures. I I was more holding her feet. I can remember the, the big boys managed to get in round about the more interesting parts of the body to hold as, as she she lay parallel to the ground in our arms. But yeah, that was that was quite special. And I've still got that photograph in um, various places around the house and as a screensaver as well. And then the, the, the photograph with the captains was, was an interesting story. So a few days before... The tournament started. There was a meeting at Lords for all of the captains and team managers, and each of the teams had a a base, a, a ground around the UK. Ours was Durham, and it was agreed that all the captains would be chauffeur driven from their their respective grounds to Lords for this meeting and back. All of the captains except me, because. They thought Durham was too far to have a chauffeur-driven car, so I I got I got the train from Durham to London, uh, and it was it was second class. But of course, as an Arbroath boy, that seemed like first class uh, to me. The train was delayed, and by the time I got to the tube station just along from from Lords, about a mile away, I was about forty-five minutes late for the meeting. And it was a scorching hot day, I had my blazer, the trues, shirt and tie on, had to run along. And I can remember the security at the gate, wouldn't believe that I was captain of the Scotland team, even though I had tartan trues on. thought there's no way that um, a dishevelled um, person's going to come running along the street as a captain um, who's taking part in the World Cup. Eventually got in, just in time for the photograph to be taken, at the foot of the new media centre, as it was then, with um, the old pavilion in the background, and you know I'm just so grateful that I did get there um, for that because you know I'm sitting next to Brian Lara, and all the other captains Steve Waugh, Alex Stewart, Makram, they're in that picture, and I would have hated to have been an inset in a photograph like that. Um, and then we went up in the lift to To hear um, some of the expectations of the teams. And I was still a little bit in shock. All of those captains knew who I was. And I don't think they knew I was George Salmond, captain of the Scotland team. They knew that I was George Salmond because I was the one that was keeping them. They were waiting for me. So we're going up in the lift and, and I got in the lift with um, what I thought was Stephen Fleming. <laughs> It was actually Hansi Cronje, so when I called him Stephen, um, I think he was a little bit um, put out by that. It was maybe quite good reverse psychology from me, though he knew who I was, but somebody as famous as him, I, I got it wrong.
1: And so when the tournament itself began, first game up, Australia at New Road in, in Worcester, Scotland's first ever ODI, of, of course, as well, and a bit of a tartan invasion of Worcester for that first match.
0: I think it was a Sunday if I remember correctly, and we were driving to the ground and we had to go through pretty much the, cent- the centre of Worcester and I remember seeing a lot of Scottish flags, saltires and line rampants and there was a split moment where I did think, is there a game of football on today? Is there a rugby international? Because of course we weren't used to the the, the soccer style um, support and um, when we played counties or played against Ireland. we have the stalwart supporters there and every now and then we'd, we'd get a glamour fixture against a test playing nation but this was this was unknown and then as the ground began to fill up, there was just an incredible atmosphere and I can remember having a, a real tear in the eye moment as Bruce and Ian walked out and um, we were batting first and the whole ground, just seemed to rise and the noise was just fantastic. And it was almost that realization that, you know, we've we've come onto the, the world stage. Here we are. Let's enjoy it.
1: Did you remember your your team talk before that game? Do you need a team talk before a game like that?
0: My team talks usually tended to be more my own um, pent up Excitement or, or nervousness, and um, just needed to to get something out. And I, I didn't often say much before, immediately before we went out to bat, either if we were batting first or second, because I think you know there's maybe a little bit more to say in terms of standards in the field that you can you can give to to people what what the plans are. But you know, so many batsmen just have their own way of preparing uh, to go out. But I do remember, I can't remember exactly what I said, but I, I, I did think that you know this is probably a moment where we do just need to make sure that we're all we're aware of, of the journey that we've been on and let's make the absolute most of this.
1: And so, as you say, put into bat, Bruce Patterson about to face the first ball from Damien Fleming live on terrestrial television for the first time straight through the covers for four, that famous start, quite a start.
0: Yeah, it was just brilliant, absolutely brilliant. So typical of Bruce, to be fair. Um, you know, he, he had great self-belief and worked so hard. And I think, again, you know, what an iconic moment. Um, everything else, that, that all the other overs, all the other balls that we faced and took part in that tournament, you know, one of the first things that gets mentioned is the very first ball and you know that that was just amazing. I, I don't know how he managed to do that because I still had a tear in my eye from the, the reaction of the crowd. Um I think had it been me I'd have been cleaned up first ball. But Bruce, um you know, I think if we'd been told the first ball was going to go for four, you know, a, a Chinese cut or a, an edge down to third man might have been expected, but it was an absolute cracking cover drive.
1: And it was a, a decent performance all round. I mean, 34 from from Gavin Hamilton, 31 from yourself, took Scotland to 181 for seven. And then Australia chased it down, but didn't certainly have it all their own way in the, uh, in the chase in the end.
0: No, I mean, I think we, we benefited a little bit from the fact that most teams struggled at the start of the tournament with the amount of swing that the, the new white ball was, was getting. And I think after Gavin and myself, the next highest scorer for Scotland that day was Extras. It was, it was an overcast day, so there was a little bit more swing as well. And, and, and the Australians struggled a little bit with that in their first couple of games. But I remember when I went out to bat, Mike Smith was at the other end. And it was Glenn McGrath and Shane Warne who were bowling. And the pair of us, when we met in the middle, we just thought with a little bit of a, a sort of wry grin at each other, thinking this is crazy. Um, we're, we're trying to bat properly here. Um, either one of them could make us look very foolish at any time. So we, we decided, look, if we're out here, let's make the most of it. Let's be positive, which, you know, is maybe a bit of a cliche. But I think we both realised that we need to, to sort of probably back ourselves here play a few shots, because if we try and hang around, there's every chance we'll nick one and we'll get out. So I can remember myself taking a few risks, you know, a little bit of luck going my way, but um, I'd like to think I worked hard for that luck as well. In the field, um, the guys did really well. I mean, I think the Australians were out there, although they had plenty good players in the hatch still. We kept them out to the 45th or 46th over, I think, and um, to get the runs, and yeah, I mean the the the, the guys bowled really really well, I seen. But um, up up first, um, Nick Dyer, James Brinkley, you know everybody, Gavin Hamilton himself, they all they all bowled really really well. And I can remember us all fielding really well. Mike Allingham took a brilliant catch to get rid of Ricky Ponting. It was in the. montage at the end of the tournament for for catch of the tournament it was my my vote certainly but uh, happy memories.
1: I must give a a shout out at this point to Gary Heatley uh, my colleague who's done a great piece in the current issue of the pinch hitter uh, on that game do check that out if you haven't already. Um, I was also chatting to John Blaine quite recently who was talking about the spirit that you had within the camp in that tournament um, that Things have been quite tough in Malaysia, a tough tournament to get through, but now it was a real sense of, what well, he described it as happy hour. You know, it was almost that you were just determined to go out there and make the absolute most of the experience and and enjoy it to the full.
0: Yes, I mean, I suppose there was a little bit more of an expectation on us in Malaysia. And, and once we got a couple of games there under our belt, I think we realised, you know, we've got a chance here. And with that, there comes a level of expectation and, and, and you know again you put pressure on yourself, you want to do as well as possible. It was a slightly different pressure in the World Cup because, you know, here we were playing against the very best in the world. And whilst there maybe wasn't the same level of expectation of, you know, qualifying through the group into the latter stages, at the same time we didn't want to let ourselves down and be, you know, ridiculed. And for a lot of that tournament, you know, we competed well. There were occasions where we found it tough but you know there was a there was just a great dressing room and um, great bunch of guys real age spread you know john was john was the youngster in there he got he and gavin you know got on very well and were full of energy around the place and, and kept everybody's spirits up so yeah lots of happy memories you, you tend to forget the, the tougher days or the, the tougher moments and um, the longer you get away
1: from it. But, you know, I've got lots of happy memories. So game two was Pakistan, uh, the riverside in Durham. Turned out to be a bigger defeat on paper than Australia, but one in which Scotland also gave a really good account of themselves for much of the game. Yeah, we had the opportunity to bowl first and had them under a little bit of pressure because we kept taking wickets. And, you know, John Blaine, I mean, John... I think
0: finished the tournament with the best strike rate um, for a bowler. And he kept taking wickets for us. It was great. And and we had them um, maybe about 60, 67, 68 for five, I think. Um, bowled really well. And of that 60, again, probably about half of them were extras just because of the you know the way that the white ball was reacting. I'd love us to go back and have a look at um, a decision, Wazi Makram, when he came out to bat. Um I've I've seen it, but without the, the sort of DRS or sort of the, the lines down the middle of, of the crease, I'm sure he was absolutely stone cold LBW very early on. And and then he and, and Can put on a very good partnership to get them up to a very good score. But I'm absolutely convinced um, one more wicket and, and we'd have been in there. But you know, good teams, really good teams you know, don't have excuses like that up their sleeves. We bowled well. I think as a captain, the one regret that I've got in that game is Asim Butt was bowling beautifully. And I took him off after eight overs to just keep a couple of overs from him up our sleeve. And he was begging with me to, to just to finish off. And I think I probably could have just let him bowl out, given that we had them... Um, five wickets down at that stage, you know he might have just been some. But then, who knows? But um, God rest his soul, he he didn't let me forget that any time that I did meet him afterwards.
1: Gavin Hamilton, again, starred in the in the chase. He scored seventy six as Scotland was bowled out for one six seven in the end. But he was having quite a tournament already, and that was to continue throughout.
0: Yeah, Gavin was outstanding. Just. Well, as a player, but just as an individual as well, because there was quite a lot of, even before his initial performances, there was a fair bit of media speculation around him in in, in the squad, but he was never never anything other than just an absolutely tremendous team guy. And we were delighted with how well he did. He he batted beautifully that day. Um, I remember Pakistan, I think in their first game, played the West Indies at Cardiff. And there was a lot of talk about Show Akhtar and how quickly he was bowling, but they didn't have any official speed gun at um, at Cardiff. However, they did say, oh, I think we'll have one at Durham. And of course, the Scottish batters, we were absolutely thrilled to know that um, there was a little bit of a challenge here to their Alpindi Express to see if he could clock 100 miles an hour. and. He he got me out, but I also remember the ball that he got Mike Smith out with, which was in the 90s, the high 90s miles per hour, and it swung very late. And, you know, Mike was as good a player as, as we had in Scotland. And, you know, if he was going to miss it by as much as he did, I think, you know, any batsman in the world would have probably got out to that delivery as well.
1: So, two matches down, positives to take from each of them, but now. The biggest opportunity of all, home match at the Grange against Bangladesh, who had been beaten in Scotland the previous year. What was the atmosphere like in Edinburgh for that first ever World Cup game on on Scottish soil?
0: Well, it was it was brilliant, and it was you know Grange was my club um, at that stage as well, so it was great to play there. The wicket was outstanding. It's a fantastic arena, you know when it's full, the stands are in. It's an incredible place to play cricket. We saw that obviously a couple of years ago with the with the England game as well. it's just just a great place to play. I remember the the Bangladesh crowd as well just creating such an incredible atmosphere the noise the color, the flags the tigers on on all of their posters it was just it was just fantastic but we knew that this this was the game that we had targeted partly because we had done well against them the previous year. But we also knew it was going to be difficult because they were a very, very talented team. Again, we bowled first. We had them 26 for five. It was I mean, that was a fantastic start. As I said previously, a dropped catch at 26 for five doesn't lose you the game. It never loses you the game and, and, and good teams would recover from that and, and take the wicket. But... That partnership, the, the, the player who was dropped went on to to, to score, and I think, 60 or 70-odd. It that, that gave them a, a sense of respectability. And from 26 for five, you're, you're certainly hoping to, to get them all out for double figures. And then suddenly to be chasing, you know, in excess of 150, it just puts a, a slightly different complexion on the game. But the wicket was good, and we should have got the runs with the bat as well.
1: Yeah, maybe a bit of a sliding doors moment. That um, that drop catch. It was um, it was Aberdeen who was who was dropped on three, and as you say, went on to make sixty eight. And then in reply, probably still favourites at the halfway point, Bangladesh had posted one eight five. Um, but suddenly you find yourself coming to the crease, and we're we're eight for three.
0: Eight for three. Yes, not the ideal start. And what I remember about my own innings. There was that I did manage to hit a couple of decent boundaries, and and felt really good. Nick had done quite well against Bangladesh the previous year, so I was I was confident going into the game. You know I'd I'd seen the bowlers before, and I I remember hitting hitting a couple of fours, and the noise, the atmosphere was just incredible, and then went after another one that I thought was in the slot to be hit for four and got caught in the gully. So, yeah, didn't really help. That meant we were suddenly 35 for four, I think. And Gavin came out and did his his bit to salvage the situation. And another ball that, that will live long in the memory is, is Alec Davies hitting a, a you know, a nice drive back, but Gavin being out of the crease at the bowler's end and the bowler getting a touch on it and and Gavin being run out in really unfortunate circumstances. But as I've said twice already, you know, that shouldn't be a defining moment. We should have still been capable of, of scoring those runs and not have been as reliant on Gavin at that particular moment. So what was the mood like after that game? Yeah, we were disappointed, Very disappointed. I've I've got a picture of myself being interviewed afterwards by Simon Hughes. I can't remember what was said, but I I never liked coming across as a bad loser. Um, You know, I'm a dreadful loser, but I think you do that behind closed doors. You you put on a bit of a face, Mm. and like to think that what I said was appreciative of you know the effort that Bangladesh had put in. But yeah, we'd. We'd really geared up so much for that game, and to win a World Cup match, because it was it was really beyond the tournament that we were looking as well, and, and we knew that if we were able to show that as an ICC associate country, we were the next best ICC associate country, you know. So give us the exposure, give us opportunities, and the series against Bangladesh the the previous year was you know clearly going to be forgotten. And and what would be remembered would be that Bangladesh beat Scotland and they actually beat Pakistan in the tournament as well. So, so that really did give them a you know a foot up the ladder and, you know that that really is, you know, I'm hoping that you're going to press fast forward on the next match but, um, <laughs> everything that happened in that tournament that's that's the biggest disappointment.
1: Well, as I say, they were still. Two games to go, New Zealand, and very quickly we'll we'll move through West Indies, as you say. Um, as we speak, in fact, today, um, just yesterday, social media was abuzz with the anniversary of Brian Lara's 501 for uh, Warwickshire back in 1994, and uh, Grace Road, in Scotland's fourth match, you came up against him in West Indies colours. I remember you telling a story about a particular tactic that you used for him, in particular when he came out to bat.
0: Yeah, so we didn't bat particularly well, and I'd love to say that um, Brian Lara won the toss and asked Scotland to bat first. (laughs) But for about, I think, the first time in a long time, I I won a couple of tosses in a tournament, so we we decided to bat first, and we were 63 all out. Um, We didn't bat well, the West Indies bowled well. Yeah, it was very, very disappointing. And, yeah, humiliating as well, you know, you don't like the game to be finished and the bars aren't even open because it's not time for the bars to open. Lots of people had travelled to watch us, to support us, possibly as well because we'd done reasonably well in stages of, of the other games, but there was there was nothing nothing good about that match. But when I'm not going to to take the blame for this one myself, I'm going to blame one of my former captains, Bruce Russell. So when I first got into the Scotland team in the early 90s, Bruce Bruce was one of the first captains that I played under. And I can remember a game at Hamilton Crescent in the old Benson and Hedges Trophy when we were playing Hampshire. And in those days, there were two days set aside for the games. And the first day was certainly rain affected. And we, we had scored... Round about 150, 160, which wasn't bad on a a really wet wicket because the conditions had been so poor. And that included facing Malcolm Marshall. Um, So, you know, the guys had done really well. Hampshire had only a few overs to bat that evening. And Mark Nicholas, their captain, was um, retired, hurt, and wouldn't be batting in the game. He'd broken a finger whilst fielding. And I can remember Peter Duthie running down the hill at uh, West Lothian, and he got John Terry out, the opening batsman, and David Gower came out to bat number three for um, for Hampshire, and Bruce came up with this genius plan, which was as Gower reached. The wicket, we would all go back to our fielding positions, but the fielding positions that we had been in for John Terry, who was a right hander, and then when David Gower took guard as a left hander, um, Bruce would shout, "It's a left hander," and we'd all run round. Now, of course, that that happens quite frequently in club cricket, but we're speaking here about probably one of the best batsmen of all time, and David Gower. That presumably everybody in the ground. And certainly the players in the field should know that he was left-handed. So I had to run from what was David Gower's square leg across the cover point. And I can remember as as Bruce shouted that and I ran past David Gower, he stepped back and, and did that little wry grin that, that, that Gower does. He he knew exactly what we'd done. Peter Duthie came down the hill and... David Gower nicked it behind first ball out. And as a young, impressionable player, I thought, you know, I'm going to bank that experience. And at some stage in the future that might come out. So about 35 for two, I think, when Brian Lara came out to bat chasing 63, I thought, here's a moment, maybe let's let's see if we can if we're not going to win the game. Let's see if we can at least get Brian Lara out. So we decided to do the same plan. I shouted um, left hand. I was square leg, crossed the cover point. Brian Lara, he didn't do any kind of wry grin. He just stayed in the crease, ready for that first ball and proceeded to smash it everywhere. And (laughs) it was game over very quickly. Had it worked, it would have been great. And I'd have taken the plaudits, but... Um, I think it just proves that there is only one Bruce Russell.
1: <laughs> Worth a try anyway. Just That's just a wonderful story. I love that. So final game. We're back to the Grange and it's New Zealand.
0: Yeah, I think maybe with hindsight, um, the impact certainly of the, the Bangladesh disappointment and the game against West Indies, it was that was quite a tough time for us. New Zealand were, I think New Zealand have always been one of these just really hard-working teams that over the years have clearly been very talented. But even when they've not maybe had the, the superstars on their team that they have certainly over the recent recent past, they've just been really good outfits that, that work well together. They, they back each other up and clearly have a lot of talent. So it was, it was always going to be a difficult game for us. And you know, coming to Scotland, where you would hope that you had you know, that advantage of conditions. A lot of New Zealand conditions tend to replicate what we have here in Scotland. So yeah, it was a it was a it was a it was a tough game and I can just remember it almost being a little bit of a beige atmosphere, not necessarily in the ground, but just amongst us because we we, we knew it was going to be our last game. We wanted to do the best that we could, but we I think there were just a few quite deep cuts and bruises from the previous two games that had really taken an emotional um, toll on, on us. And I speak personally from that as well. I think it had been it had been really really tough. You know, normally when you played with Scotland, if you didn't play particularly well, if you had a game, if you go away to club matches, you'd, you'd get your confidence up. Hopefully you get a few runs and you'd be back in a couple of weeks for the next game and everybody would be feeling fresh again. It had been... You know the spotlight had really been um, shone on us, and yeah, we were quite disappointed with the previous two games.
1: Yeah, it was that game actually that John uh, Blaine highlighted as the the one he remembered as being where the disappointment came out at the end. He said even more perhaps than the Bangladesh game. It was almost as if the the team realised that that was that was the tournament over. That was the last chance gone. Yeah, I mean the, the, clearly the. The hope going in was that,
0: you know, we would beat Bangladesh and, you know, it'd be brilliant if we could take um, one of the scalps of the test playing nations. Now, that, that was a big, big, it would still be a big shout just now for the Scotland guys, as, as phenomenal as they are just now. It's And, and they've done it. But I think it, it's still, given the inequality in the game, it's still a massive, a massive accomplishment to even compete with one of the test playing teams. Now, the, the the current squad have done that for a number of years and have beaten teams and I, I just think that's incredible. But back in 99, you know, that gap was was even wider. We, we wanted to compete and, and take the games deep and that was what was pleasing about the Australian game. You know, we'd lost, but there was that sense that we'd made them work for it. We'd made Pakistan work because they'd been under a little bit of pressure themselves. But the last three games, well, maybe the Bangladesh game was competitive, but the West Indies and the New Zealand games were, yeah, we, we, we got well and truly beaten in both of those.
1: It is a tournament, though, that so many people have such fond memories of. When you look back today on it, what's, what's your overriding emotion?
0: Right. You know, to have, to have been a reasonably good club cricketer, and to have had the opportunity to play on the world stage like that, I mean, I can have no other feelings than than pride and gratitude, because there are, I don't know how many other cricketers through the ages that have been so much better than I was, that never got in a sniff of an opportunity like that. Um, I've still got so many happy memories from being involved in that, barely a couple of weeks go by without somebody speaking to me about it and, and asking questions. And, you know, I, I tend to answer, you know, around some of the more positive experiences of it, but every now and then there's somebody who says, I traveled down to Leicester, you owe me a pint, type thing. Um, but, but yeah, it was, it was just great to be involved. We didn't, when I started playing for Scotland, we, we, we were playing Ireland and we played the counties and occasionally we got a glamour fixture we weren't even an associate nation so you know to have the opportunity to play in that tournament it was a non-starter in 1990 but um, the work that uh, John Everett as, as chairman of the Scottish cricket union as it was then and Jim Love the, the coach did to to get us on that stage is something that we should all be extremely grateful for.
1: Well George it's been absolutely tremendous to speak to you we haven't even touched on our growth and on all of the other aspects of your career I'd, I'd love to do that another time if we could.
0: Oh that'd be that'd be great Jake it's lovely to reminisce and um, yeah happy days but you know I'm, I'm just so pleased to have been a part of the journey of Scottish cricket I think since I stopped playing in 2001 for what respect of squads, coaches and Cricket Scotland officials have done to take the game on has been absolutely brilliant. I'm so proud to have been a part of the the history Um, but I'm very excited about the, the present and the future too.
1: Well thank you so much for that and for all the memories that you've shared today too and thank you once again for listening. I'll be back next Monday with another Cricket Scotland podcast Stay safe and I'll see you soon